Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Welcome to the latest edition of the Blackstone Chambers Litigation Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about music litigation. Uh, my name is Ian Mill and I'm joined by my colleagues Mark Vinyl, Celia Rooney and Rayan Fakuri. Uh, I have been practicing uh, in music litigation for over 35 years. I've always found it fascinating, in particular because of the wide range of the work involved and also the legal issues that are raised, both intellectual property and contract. We're going to talk about the types of work which are currently being engaged by us. But I just wanted to start by discussing something which no longer seems to be prevalent, and that is the types of case involving members of or recording artists and songwriters in dispute with their record or music publishing companies. There was, until the case of George Michael in the mid-90s, a spate of cases where artists and writers sought to get out of their contracts uh, with those companies. And they were doing it on the basis of restraint of trade uh, and undue influence. In addition to George Michael, there was the Stone Roses and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Those were probably the most prominent cases. Uh, That really died with George, George's case. And I think there's two reasons for that. Firstly, because as a result of that, I think record companies recognized where their limits of what they could get away with uh, were to be set. And secondly, because the whole economic structure of the music industry uh, changed from the mid-90s with the advent of uh, uh, internet piracy and the, in, and the consequence of, of digital exploitation. And that's something that we'll look at in the context of work that uh, we're doing currently. So uh, looking at current work, Um, and maybe starting with intellectual property. There have been a spate of cases involving plagiarism and infringement of copyright. One particularly uh, notable one in the last year was the case involving Ed Sheeran, uh, which involved both myself and Rayan. Rayan, perhaps you could uh, talk to us about that. Yes, sure. So this was a dispute around Ed Sheeran's song, Shape of You, uh, which he co-wrote with Johnny McDade uh, the, from Snow Patrol and Steve Mack, the acclaimed music producer and songwriter. Uh, and it was a dispute specifically about a bit of the post-chorus uh, where Ed sings OI oh, repeatedly. I'll spare all of you and um, listeners from my attempt at singing it. Uh, but essentially, Sammy Chokri, who's a UK rapper and hip-hop artist, alleged that that bit of the song had been copied whether consciously or subconsciously, from his own song, Oh Why. Uh, now, the court ultimately concluded that um, Ed had not heard Oh Why and had therefore neither consciously nor subconsciously copied it. Uh, and there are f- quite a few interesting facets to this case, but I thought it would be worth highlighting three in particular. I'd be interested to know, Ian, if you agree. Sure. Um, first is it raised really squarely the question of how we think about access uh, in the digital age. And in other words, whether someone who's alleged to have infringed uh, the copyrights in a musical work had access to and was therefore able to copy 
the original work. Um, now, the context is that as, as a matter of law, although the person alleging infringement bears the legal burden of proof, if they put forward enough evidence of similarity and proof of access, the evidential burden shifts to the uh, alleged infringer to establish that they didn't copy. And so in the Sheeran case, a question arose as to whether what was required was proof of access or proof only of the possibility of access. Now, that's obviously a much more important question today than it was a few years ago, because nowadays, literally tens of thousands of new songs are uploaded every single day uh, to platforms like Spotify, uh, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Uh, and in the end, that court held that what was required was sufficient proof of access rather than mere possibility, particularly taking account the kind of modern dynamics of music, report, recording, and streaming, and all the rest of it, uh, but emphasized also that it would be a question of fact and degree in each case. Uh, and I can imagine that's probably not the end of, that we've seen of this issue of access in the age of um, sort of digital streaming platforms and, and the rest of it. Um, the second issue, which I thought was quite interesting as a facet of this case, is how the courts think about commonplace musical motifs or sometimes generic musical motifs. Uh, and here, the sort of disputed bit of music consisted primarily of the rising first four notes of the minor pentatonic scale, which is uh, perhaps the most intuitive musical scale that exists. And I remember um, when first doing a bit of the reading on the case, there are all sorts of interesting bits of research that touch on this as a matter of human psychology. And if you go on YouTube, you'll find, you know, videos of small children who find if you hit the wrong note in a scale, quite jarring, sort of as a, as a really inbuilt bit of human psychology. Uh, and so in a case like this, that goes to two questions. The first is whether the relevant element of music is protectable at all. And so in the Sheeran case, the judge said uh, that although the chorus of OY, and this was the original song which was alleged to have been copied, was made up of a number of individually commonplace elements, uh, including the use of the minor pentatonic scale, vocal chants, harmonies, that sort of thing, that actually the combination of these represented the intellectual creativity of the writers and was therefore protected uh, by copyright. And so I think that's going to be an interesting question that arises in almost all music copyright cases, because there are only so many notes and only so many ways to move between the different notes. Um, but the commonplace musical elements also go to the question of copying. And that's because the more distinctive and unique a musical motif is, uh, the less likely it is that two songwriters independently arrived at the very same thing. Uh, and in the Sheeran case, the judge found that in the end, there was nothing really surprising about Ed Sheeran and his co-writers arriving at a post-chorus which followed the rising notes of this minor pentatonic scale. Uh, because, as he put it, that scale was the unifying feature of the entire song and was essentially, quote, in their DNA during the writing session. Uh, and I think that's always going to be something that arises sort of on a spectrum of how unique and distinctive versus generic it is. And it will always go to both how protectable it is in the first place and establishing copying. The third issue arising, I think, from the case is a more practical one, and that's thinking about whether the outcome of this case means that we're just going to see 
less litigation of this kind, in the UK at least, going forward. Um, after a sort of recent flurry, as you suggested, uh, Ian. And I think in this respect, um, the direction of travel seems to be in contrast with the position across the pond in the US, where you know, there's all litigation of this kind really abounds, and it's not clear that there's any uh, sort of direction of travel to slow things down. And that might be a consequence of the way these cases are tried over in the US, where, as I understand it, different procedural rules apply, and you, generally speaking, might end up facing a jury as opposed to a judge. But that was my sense of the sort of three interesting facets of the Sheeran case for music litigation going forward. At this yeah, time. Yeah, I, I agree with those. And in particular, I think you're right to highlight the differential in the United States. Um, I attended a, a conference in New York uh, in October, which was specifically designed to look at the disparities between UK and US litigation. And the, I think the position in the US is quite terrifying from the point of view of a, of a songwriter who's being sued. Uh, Ed Sheeran is facing uh, another case there. I looked at the facts of it, and in, and in the UK, that case would have been struck out. But the attitude, of, and there was an application to strike out, but what the judge said was, there is a jury impaneled, or which will be impaneled, and these matters must be dealt with by a jury. Mm. And uh, there is a recognition, correctly, I think, in the US that uh, having a, uh, a, a jury which is non-expert in the area is liable to lead to a less reliable uh, outcome. Celia, I think uh, you had a similar experience to us with a, in a case the previous year with the same judge who has the advantage of being both a composer uh, and a performer of, of music and therefore more likely perhaps to reach the right result than an, uh, a, a jury. Tell us about that case. Yes, absolutely. So the judge in question was Mr. Justice Zaccaroli. Uh, and I, I certainly know in our case, his musical knowledge was really invaluable. Not least you could see him keeping up with all the experts in the case, uh, you know, very much able to pose relevant questions. Uh, the case in question is called Smith versus Dryden. It was brought by a former contestant of The Voice against the members of Rudimental, the drum and bass group, who became a household name in 2013 when they released the single Waiting All Night. Uh, James Newman, one of the UK's recent Eurovision entries and the brother of the pop star John Newman was also named as a defendant, uh, along with a number of music publishing companies. Tom Weisselberg KC, uh, also of Blackstone Chambers and myself, happily uh, represented the successful defendants. The claimant alleged that both the lyrics and the melody of the chorus of Waiting All Night, a fast-paced drum and bass song, infringed the copyright of her own work, a slow ballad called Can You Tell Me? Mr Justice Zaccaroli concluded that Mr Newman, the person who wrote that chorus, the disputed chorus, had not copied any part of the claimant's song. In summary, uh, while there were objective similarities between the choruses of both songs, there were also notable differences which the judge considered to be not insignificant. And in that case, given the simplicity of the melody, uh, which only spanned three, uh, three different tones, and the frankly generic nature of the disputed lyric, which was, tell me that you need me, tell me that you want me, about as generic as it comes, uh, the fact that there were those differences was actually very important. The judge also concluded that it was unlikely that Mr. Newman had access to the claimant's song. So again, this important issue of access coming to the fore. Uh, in that case, it was probably easier in the sense that uh, the claimant's song had actually never been released commercially. 
and although she had met various members of Rudimento, there was no reason to believe that they had ever had access to the song, and certainly that Mr Newman, the person that actually wrote the chorus, had access to her song. And crucially in that case, Mr James Newman had a recording on his iPhone. Uh, he had recorded a voice memo effectively from the day or days when he first came up with the chorus for Waiting All Night. And that was significant because what you could hear was him effectively testing different melodies and different lyrics, seeing what worked and didn't work, which was strong corroboration of his evidence effectively it was an authentic creation. So lots, I think, of the same issues that you see in uh, the Sheeran case. Sheeran was, I think, on a different scale in terms of you know size and financial interest, etc. cetera. Uh, but Smith versus Dryden, I think, remains a really interesting case. Um, for anyone looking at these claims of uh, effectively copying where you might say the underlying lyric or music are effectively hackneyed. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, one other type of case involving writing of, of songs uh, should perhaps be mentioned, and that's the, uh, the case where there is a dispute between the members of a, gr a group as to who actually was responsible for writing the songs. Uh, and therefore, who has the the, the share of the shares of copyright? Uh, there was a case, well-known case called Fisher and Brooker, uh, which went up to the House of Lords, uh, and then that was a case concerning the song "A Whiter Shade of Pale." So the case was brought a very, very considerable time after the song was written in the mid 1960s, uh, and Mr. Fisher was the organist in that well-known part of the song uh, and he had written that uh, and despite the longevity uh, it, the court was able to find uh, that uh, he had indeed a 40 percent share uh, in that uh, in that song uh, albeit that that hadn't been reflected in the royalties or indeed the all the documents registering the ownership of copyright uh, for 40 years uh, I had one recently involving Bob Geldof. Probably his best song, I Don't Like Mondays, uh, was one for which he won the uh, Ivan Novello Award for best, best uh, song in, I think, 1979, which was when it was uh, released. Uh, and Johnny Fingers, the splendidly named pianist <laughs> in the Boomtown Rats, decided 35 years later or 40 years later uh, that actually he had written the music <laughs> for that uh, for that song, um, and I have to say I found that absolutely fascinating. It, it settled, unfortunately, just before well, unfortunately for me, just before trial. Uh, but the issues about memory and reliability of evidence, given those given the, the passage of time, was particularly interesting. And I think those sorts of cases uh, will uh, carry on. Um, we ought to look perhaps at one other aspect of IP, which is passing off. Just before that, if I could just very briefly mention a couple of other topics which have been subject of and continue to be the subject of uh, litigation, uh, certainly for our chambers. Um, one is uh, website blocking injunctions. Uh, the music industry pretty much fell apart in the early noughties as a result of internet piracy. and um, one response to that was to get injunctions stopping the access of individuals to websites which offered um, which, which offered infringing content. 
uh, as far as I know, that's still going on, the, both the music and the film industries, uh, and the fight uh, goes on. Uh, secondly, um, cases involving collecting societies and the tariffs that they impose, um, uh, and so thus PRS and uh, PPL dealing with uh, copyrights in the songs themselves and in the, the recordings. Uh, those have been historically quite bitter disputes about how the, the, what the tariffs should be. Um, they're less frequent now, and I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, firstly, because the two collective societies are better managed than they used to be, and there's more cooperation between them. Uh, secondly, I think the, the industry has learned to respect those societies, largely because of a product of the increased importance of their revenues uh, to the businesses involved. But I think we should move on to passing off. And uh, Ren and Celia, you were, I think, wanting to talk about a particular case? Sure. I, I thought one interesting one to raise would be the case brought by Rihanna against Topshop and uh, the Arcadia Group, I think, Topshop's owner, um, which made its way up to the Court of Appeal, in fact, back in 2015. Um, and by way of factual summary, essentially, Topshop, then obviously a retail giant, uh, had been selling a T-shirt which displayed an image of Rihanna. And it was quite a well-known image that was associated with one of her recent very successful um, singles. Uh, the copyright in the image was owned by a third party, a photographer who had taken it, and he had licensed it to Topshop. Um, so that they were entitled to use it as a matter of copyright. So there was no question of a copyright claim being brought. Um, but Rihanna herself uh, had not given permission um, for the image uh, to be used by Topshop. And the starting point in law, the court said, uh, is that there's no image rights as such in English law. So there's no right for a person to control the use of their likeness, their face, their image. Uh, and what that means in practice is that a celebrity seeking to control the use of their image generally has to rely on some other cause of action. So breach of confidence, misuse of private information, or in this case, the tort of passing off. And so Rihanna brought a claim for passing off against Topshop on the basis, essentially, that members of the public were likely to be deceived uh, into believing that the T-shirt was approved or endorsed or authorized by her. Uh, and that claim required her to demonstrate three things. First, that she'd built up goodwill and a reputation in fashion and clothing. Uh, second, that Topshop's use of her image amounted to a misrepresentation that she had endorsed or approved the T-shirt. Uh, and third, that the misrepresentation had caused or was likely to cause damage to her goodwill and business. The defendants argued that really, in substance, Rihanna was claiming an image right. That is precisely the kind of right which was not recognized in English law. Uh, at first instance, the judge allowed the claim. He held that although the, the sale of the T-shirt with Rihanna's image did not, without more, amount to passing off, uh, in the circumstances of this particular case, with the particular image in question and the context of the relationship between Rihanna and Topshop, this was passing off. Uh, and the Courts of Appeal upheld that decision. Uh, they cited uh, the famous Elvis Presley case, where the courts found that the fact that merchandise carried an image of a celebrity uh, did not necessarily mean that the public would assume that the celebrity had endorsed it. Uh, in other words, this is an instance of the sort of no general image rights. 
But the distinction in the present case was that Rihanna had her own clothing line, a good reputation in fashion and uh, clothing, and indeed that she had a background relationship with Topshop, and that Topshop had sought to do a lot of marketing by reference to that. And, and two examples that were cited were that uh, in the past they'd held a shopping competition offering the chance to win a personal shopping appointment with Rihanna at uh, their flagship Oxford Circus store. Uh, and another was, I think, publicizing instances where she had attended or had worn Topshop clothing and the rest of it. Uh, and the idea being that in doing so, they had sort of emphasized the existence of some an official or approved connection between their brand and Rihanna, which meant that in the particular circumstances of this case, uh, the use of this image amounted to passing off. Uh, and it was also relevant, the court said, that the particular image in question was closely associated with this recent successful uh, music video, which meant that members of the public were more likely to assume that the T-shirt had been approved or endorsed by her. Uh, and so although there was not in general an image right, in the particular circumstances of this case, given the nature of the T-shirt in question and the image in question, as well as the relationship between Rihanna and Topshop, um, the sale of the T-shirt amounted to passing off. Celia, you um, had a subsequent case which I think looked at the Rihanna decision, is that right? Yes, absolutely. I actually did two or three, but one in particular where uh, we were again against Topshop and Urban Outfitters this time. Uh, the client, I won't name any names because ultimately it settled out of court, but quite a famous Brit Award winning artist. Um, and what the shops had done in that case was basically take really quite distinctive images funny images from the artist's private Facebook page and splashed them across the face of a notebook, which also carried effectively uh, this artist's quite famous catchphrase. Uh, again, a sort of silly comedy catchphrase. But we relied really heavily on uh, Rihanna, the Rihanna case effectively, to, to allege uh, passing off and in addition copyright claims in that case, as they, alas, unfortunately settled out of court. How do you anticipate that would have worked out had the case gone to trial? I think it would have been an uphill battle in the sense that it wouldn't, um, or, or I think it's not, we didn't have the same sort of background factual pattern that you have in Rihanna's case, uh, where there was this long established association where he was effectively someone, uh, or where she was effectively someone who was selling her clothes almost in competition with Topshop at the time. Um, but what you have instead was very much just a pure and simple use of the image. So I think it could have been more difficult, albeit that I have to say um, the offending article uh, is quite difficult to see that they didn't think that they, sh they should at least ask his permission uh, in the first instance if you saw this particular uh, particular notebook. So I think we, we ought to move on from, from there, just making the observation that uh, in the context of band names, which Mark's going to talk about, the tort of passing off is also uh, relevant. Um, I think we'll look at some more contract-based materials now. And I think we might just start, Mark, with you um, and the uh, raft of artist-manager disputes that there have been and continue to be. Perhaps yeah. you could tell us a bit about that. Sure, thank you, Ian. So artists typically have a manager who helps them with business decisions, negotiates on their behalf, works to promote them, manages their diary, liaises with the record companies and manages their other professional advisors. And managers come in all shapes and sizes. They range from highly sophisticated and experienced industry operators to 
the band's mates from before they were famous who are learning it on the job. Um, but they are, there are at least two legally interesting things about managers. The first is that like your solicitor, your manager is a fiduciary, which means they have duties to act selflessly in the artist's interests, and that gives rise for a certain amount of scope for litigation when it's alleged that they haven't done that and that the money isn't where it all should be. Um, I'm not going to dwell on that aspect. The second legally interesting thing about managers is that they're almost invariably paid by way of commission on the artist's earnings. Now this means the manager often has to do a lot of work on the basis that it'll be years before they get paid for it if they ever do. Work done on the launch of a successful album might not start generating income that hits the artist's bank account for months or years after the album is released, but the album might can then continue to generate income for decades afterwards. So from the manager's point of view, the manager doesn't want to be exposed to the situation where they work for years to make an artist a success and then get cut out when the real money starts to flow in. So as well as the headline commission percentage and what income it's payable on, the manager will also be looking at two things. First, how long is the term of a management agreement? How quickly can I get sacked? And secondly, what happens after the term comes to an end. And agreements will often provide for the manager to have a continuing entitlement to commission on income received after the term, on recordings made or songs written or deals negotiated during the term. And from the artist's point of view, the artist will want to know what happens if the relationship doesn't work out, how easy is it to get rid of my manager, what ongoing entitlement to my earnings will they potentially have for years after I thought I'd got rid of them? So that can give rise to a number of different legal disputes. There may, in the first instance, be a dispute about whether there is any post-term commission entitlement at all. Management relationships often start informally, sometimes on a trial basis, sometimes never get formally documented. Now, you know, you may think that's a bit odd for people whose job it is to keep on top of the paperwork, but um, just as doctors aren't always people who take the best care of their own health and lawyers don't always read the small print of their own contracts, um, I've seen a number, a surprising number of management relationships involving quite sophisticated managers where the relationship has never been reduced to writing. Because when things are going well, people often don't want to talk about what's going to happen if things turn sour. Um, if that's happened, um, this can put the manager in quite a vulnerable position. Uh, a proper post-term commission clause has lots of variables in it, um, and it's not safe to assume that if you've just done the deal on a handshake, that the court will imply some sort of post-term commission entitlement, because it's not sufficiently certain what that entitlement would look like. Um, secondly, there may be a dispute about what income the commission entitlement bites on. Um, Ian and I were involved in a case uh, where there was an issue about whether a massive hit song had been written the day the management term started or the day before. Um, thirdly, sometimes the artist says, 
that the manager has committed a very serious breach of contract and has repudiated the agreement and therefore they don't get any post-term commission. Now that's unlikely to be correct because in most cases the commission is earned when the work is done, even if it's not payable until much later. Um, and lastly, the artist might allege that the commission entitlement post-term is so outlandish in its size or its length of time that it doesn't leave enough income left over for the artist to earn a living and pay a new manager and is therefore unenforceable on the ground of restraint of trade. Now an argument like that succeeded in a case in the 1980s for Joan Armour Trading um, and then in the noughties Ian and I were involved in a case acting for Seals manager or former manager um, where in that case the judge accepted that that contract would not prevent the artist from getting a new manager and earning a living because the new manager would, as a matter of industry practice, be likely to forego commission on income which was commissionable by the old manager. Um, but it's um, not common nowadays to see um, very long periods of post-term commission entitlement. There's usually a tapering arrangement and a sunset clause um, to bring the arrangement to an end. The second fruitful area for litigation has been, and increasingly I think is, uh, royalty disputes arising from the terms of historic contracts. There are interesting issues of construction uh, which arise where you've got a contract entered into in particular at a time when modes of digital exploitation didn't exist but which need to be construed so as to know how, if at all, uh, a company, record company or music publisher has to account uh, for uh, exploitation, in particular streaming, which really uh, only became a, uh, a commercial matter uh, within the last 10 or so years. Uh, and there are historic and ongoing pieces of litigation uh, involving those questions, which are, I think, particularly interesting and uh, difficult to resolve. Uh, thirdly, and I think finally, uh, we should talk maybe about uh, the sorts of band member partnership disputes that historically uh, and currently have and do continue to exist. Um, Celia, why don't you talk to us about Mr. Moss and Culture Club? Yeah, of course. Uh, Tom Weisselberg, again, uh, King's Council and myself have for more than four years represented John Moss who was the drummer in Culture Club for the best part of 37 years. In 2018, he was expelled from the band by Boy George and his new manager. The case was originally due to be heard uh, at a main liability hearing in December 2021. And the issue for determination at that point was whether the band, which everyone accepted had operated as a partnership at various times, did so continuously throughout the 37 year period during which Mr. Moss was a member of the group. That issue was effectively conceded by Boy George and the defendants uh, after skeleton arguments went in at the 11th hour before trial. But a further trial is listed for March and April of this year. And that trial will determine the quantum issues that arise from Mr. Moss's departure from Culture Club and therefore the partnership. But there's also uh, a second set of quite interesting fraud allegations where Mr. Moss alleges that Boy George and his personal service companies conspired to defraud him of monies held by the, the group's US booking agent for and on his behalf. 
The booking agent had agreed to hold the monies pending the resolution of the claims in the English courts. Uh, despite that, it's alleged that Boy George and his companies brought US proceedings to ensure the release of those monies to them without putting Mr. Moss on notice uh, of the US proceedings and without informing the US court of his claims to the same monies in England. Uh, so it's an almighty fallout. It's potentially going to trial this year. So I, I suppose watch this space. Thank you. An issue which has quite frequently arisen in the past and which is currently involving Mark and I in an action which has just started um, is issues around the goodwill in the name of a band, in particular in the context of a dissolution of a partnership or breakup of a re commercial relationship. Um, Mark, perhaps you can help us a little bit on that. So it depends very much how the band was set up and to what extent that lawyers were involved at that stage. And that can make a difference in at least three ways. First, there might be a properly drafted contract with express terms dealing with this, who owns the name, what happens if people leave. Um, if there is, happy days. You've probably got the answer to your problem. Second, whether the name has been registered as a trademark, um, in which case, there is a register showing who owns it, or whether it's simply an unregistered name that attracts goodwill, which is protected by the law of passing off. And thirdly, how the band itself is set up, whether, as Ian and Celia have said, it operates as a general partnership, and many bands do without necessarily knowing that they're a partnership, um, or whether it operates through a limited company. And um, if you've got a company, then probably the company owns the band name and the dispute between the members is a company law shareholder dispute. Uh, if it's not, then it's a partnership dispute. So there may be issues about the partnership trying to stop leaving members from using the name or where one member has used the name, whether they have to account to the partnership for the profits resulting from it or on dissolution of a partnership uh, about how much the name is worth, which can uh, be uh, a matter on which uh, expert valuers can disagree to a quite astonishing extent. Yes, they can. And uh, indeed, I had a couple of instances where that happened. Uh, I acted for members of Snow Patrol and Sugar Babes. And the particular issue which arose in valuing the name was by reference to future uh, live performance and to what extent the live performance and the revenues accruing from that were attributable to goodwill which had already been built up prior to the dissolution of the partnership a somewhat um, knotty issue uh, sadly both cases settled just before trial so one doesn't quite know what a court would make of it but i thought it was interesting celia you've um, you had involvement with the, the the cooks i think yeah, on a sort of similar uh, topic, which was I represented the bassist in the Cooks, who had once again uh, been expelled from the group that he had been a member of for a long time. Uh, what was interesting in that case was that there was a partnership agreement, which I think is actually quite uncommon. Quite often they're operating as a partnership at will. Uh, but in addition, there was an LLP entity that was effectively responsible for all the touring activities. And what you therefore had was a really quite complicated little case about the interaction between partnership laws and the default rules for LLPs. 
And that's an issue I have to say, there's very little guidance on it from the courts generally, uh, but also in particular in the music uh, litigation context. So I was very sorry it didn't make it, make it to a final, uh, final hearing because it would have been very interesting, I think, to get some better guidance from the court on those issues. Indeed, and uh, on that note, I think we have to draw this to an end. Uh, for all those who are still listening, thank you, and uh, we'll see what happens next time. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.